0: Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 1. Uh, We're going to be back in uh, Daniel chapter one today, as we continue our faithful citizenship practice and sermon series. Uh, A quick side note, sort of, we're changing the order of the the practice and the sermon series so that we can have a few people uh, I want to uh, kind of participate in the teaching next week be available. So this week is supposed to be week three, which is about seeking the welfare of the community we're in. We are going to not do that today. We'll come back to that next week, and we're jumping to week four. So teaching-wise, we're just switching those two also if you're in a practice, group, your leaders know this, they'll communicate and have it ready for you. But this week, you'll be going through chapter four or week four of those booklets. Uh, So far, we've been talking about what it means to be faithful citizens and the fact that we have a call to be faithful citizens, both to King Jesus and to the community around us, our city, our state, our country, and that embracing both of those calls simultaneously presents all kinds of unique challenges and questions. Uh, one of the things we talked about last week is that we're called to be relationally integrated into the community we're a part of. On one hand, we need, have to have solid Christian relationships, yet we can't be fully isolated and solely Christian community. On the other side, what we're called to have many and good relationships with non-Christians, but we can't be fully assimilated into what our culture says is good when it might disagree with what Jesus himself has declared as good. And so there's this healthy tension in the middle of isolation and assimilation that we have to try to build our relationships, our value system on And in the midst of that, last week we talked about this really incredibly challenging relational framework that Jesus gives us, which is in essence to wash the feet of all people types, of friends, of enemies, of the rich, of the poor, of people that totally disagree with you, of people you agree with, anybody and everybody, not literal foot washing, but loving and serving those that he places in front of us. Today we'll continue uh, in that that series in conversation. We're going to talk about more challenging things because that's kind of what we do when we're in the midst of a practice. And I was thinking about how to frame this this week and uh, an image came to mind of what happens when uh, you see this terrible news uh, from a distance or you see it in the news or social media and a shooting has just happened. It's horrendous. It's devastating because our senses experience the devastating loss that is not going to be replaced in that moment. And there's weeping and mourning and tears and and just this total, utter devastation and lament. And it seems as if for like one millisecond, our country laments together. And then one millisecond later, we move from that. We leave everyone that's going to have to continue to lament and struggle and weep and wail. And we turn towards animosity and anger and opinions and hatred and ideas. And we point the finger at so many different types of enemies. Without solutions, we dehumanize. It's ugly, it's devastating, it's brutal, it's real something we are dealing with in our cultural moments. Another thing we're dealing with in this moment in time is the reality that this massive train of, of kids that were so used to walking out of that aisle and then had to turn around and walk out of this aisle, and that was slightly confusing for her. This is pretty crazy. I'm still wrapping my mind around this, but every single one of those little guys, like this tall, they're going to be forced Forced to choose, very likely, at a very young age, biologically way too young, to choose their sexual idea or sexual identity or orientation. That was not a choice I had to make when I was that age. They will not have the choice to not make that choice. We live in a different cultural moment. Can't really hide that. Can't protect them from that. That's just the reality in a new day. We as the church, we as uh, people following Jesus together in community are kind of like a, a ship at sea and there's a massive storm that's happening and what we've kind of historically done often is we hunker down and go into the cabin as the the lightning crashes and the, the thunder vibrates, the ship and the weight and pressure of the water accumulates and we just kind of distantly hope that somehow the storm will pass. Meanwhile, the water continues to come on board, the ship gets heavier and eventually it will sink. Or we have the option to face the fears Face the unknown, face the real, that's a key word, real dangers of going up onto the deck and begin to bail water to face the real dangers that are occurring and do the best we can to save that ship along with those that we love that are on it. The, the storm that I'm referring to is this intersection of our culture's values with the way of Jesus. The storm is the gray areas we as followers of Jesus don't have a choice but to face. We need to understand this about Jesus. Jesus was constantly, and hear that word, constantly in the midst of gray areas and Jesus was constantly ridiculed and judged and tormented and all kinds of things because he was constantly in the gray areas. He was judged by the, I'll say figurative left and right, conservative, liberal, religious, political. From all perspectives, they looked at Jesus and who he was with and what he was discussing and the ideologies and values and said, how could you be with them? How could you think that? How could you entertain this? Right in the midst of the storm of the gray that they were faced with in their cultural moment, that's where you would find Jesus. And to be faithful citizens of both King Jesus and our city, state, country, community, we too are called to step into and through the gray. And here's the main idea, if you will, this morning. Humble resistance is the only way through the gray. Humble resistance is the only way through the gray. Through is an important concept. Jesus calls us to be relationally integrated with Christians and non-Christians alike, to have a voice, to be influential, to be loving, strong, and compassionate. So we're called to go through, into and through the gray, to actually find success in the gray. And the only way that that's going to be possible is with humble resistance. Larry Osborne, a pastor in California, wrote a book called Thriving in Babylon. He says this, today we are far more prone to isolate than to infiltrate. We keep our personal contact with godless leaders and institutions to a minimum. And when we do engage, it's more likely to be an adversarial confrontation than conducted in a civil conversation. Many of you have experienced this. It's no wonder our cultural influence is at an all-time low. Feel that for a second because that's the weight of what we're discussing. Our cultural influence is at an all-time low because of how we handle the gray. There's issues really on, on two components of this whether or not we resist and whether we resist in a prideful or a humble manner. Here's kind of this diagram to, to think about this and we'll post it later because I recognize it's small. But here's these quadrants on the, the top left. We can humbly resist in the midst of these gray areas but be disengaged. And if that's what we do, we'll have amical, amicable relationships but no, no influence. We'll have surface level only. Our relationships will not be bad But they will not be good. There will be no bridge built and no plan to build one. And this is the key. This is not love. This is the type of relationship you have, maybe with a a family member, a friend, maybe a childhood friend, where you know there's a chasm in between the two of you because of your value system, your opinions, your thoughts, maybe your beliefs. And so the way that you choose to handle it is to never discuss it, because as long as you never discuss it, you don't have to deal with it. But the reality of that type of disengagement is that we actually don't make the relationship good. We actually don't love and seek the best interest of the other because fear of something causes us to hold it at a distance. Below that is this quadrant marrying a prideful resistance with a disengagement. There we have animosity, anger and hatred, no progress or understanding. Relationships die. Have you ever experienced that? Have you had a relationship end because of a disagreement in a gray area? Divides are deepened. Bridges are burned violently. This, too, is not love. On the bottom right, we have engagements with prideful resistance. This might be the most damaging of all of them. Here, there's this dehumanization. People, in the eyes of those who engage with the prideful resistance, uh, lose their ability to see people as people. Instead, what we see are people as projects, political propositions, or problems. We then have no voice in the gray areas. This, too, is not love, which brings us to our last, the top right, marriage of humble resistance with engagement into the gray areas. Then compassion is birthed. There's unity in the midst of differences of opinions. There's light and darkness. This is unbelievably culturally refreshing because it's so unique. It's rare and extremely valuable relationships that are created in this. It does build bridges. This is love. This is the way of Jesus. This is what we, as the church, are called into to be faithful citizens. Rick McKinley puts it, this way, speaking of what he calls uh, windows of opposition. That's how he refers to these gray areas. Confronting windows of opposition within a culture can be very challenging. If we go to war against the people who believe certain things are not sin, we misrepresent Jesus' love and compassion to them. But if we just ignore those issues, we misrepresent Jesus' truth and authority to them. Chances are you error, you lean. We talked about this last week. I like to think of what your lean is. If you're gonna fall, you're gonna fall one direction. Which way is it? Chances are you have a lean to err on one of these sides. It's to confront people who are quote unquote sinning and don't see it or to not bring love and compassion. If we just ignore those issues, we misrepresent Jesus's truth and authority to them. This is the tight rope we walk. How do we do both faithfully? This is why being faithful to Jesus requires discernment because Jesus loves people enough to die for them and he is the hope of the world. We hold this truth carefully and seek to carry it faithfully so that those who hear and see the gospel that we announce see and hear it accurately represented as good news. The word gospel literally means good news. It doesn't mean salvation. It means good news. By the way, we live and jump into the intersection of the way of Jesus and our culture's values when they're gray, the world either will see and experience and perceive Jesus as actually good news or not. Oftentimes, the way the church has presented Jesus to our culture does not say that this is good news. It communicates that for them, Jesus is bad news. Daniel and his friends, as the, Jeremiah, as the prophet Jeremiah prophesied about them having to go live in Babylon as exiles, they faced these types of gray areas as well in their time as exiles. And as they learned a whole new life and a whole new culture and world, they had to decide what was worth resisting and what was not worth resisting. We read about it in chapter 1 of Daniel, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of, this is important, his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of, once again, his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defects, good looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace, and to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. Verse 5, the king assigned them daily provisions from royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years in that culture, systems, and values, and at the end of that time, they were to serve in the king's court as advisors. Among them from the descendants of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them other names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Notice this. It does not say anywhere in the book of Daniel that they refused the names that they were given. It does not say anywhere in this book that they chose death or martyrdom instead of being called these names. It does not say anywhere in this book that they prioritized, above all else, holding on to their godly names instead of being called by these. It doesn't say that they didn't respond when they heard their new names. That's what these new names actually are translated as. Daniel means God, Yahweh is my judge. His new name, Bel protect him, meaning put your faith in the God that just destroyed your other God. Hananiah, God, speaking of Yahweh God, has been gracious. They said that doesn't obviously work for you, so here's your new name, the command of Aku, because that God destroyed your previous God. Mishael, who is what God is? Meaning there's no one that can compare to our God. And then they said, not so fast. Who is what Aku is? Azariah, the Lord has helped me. That's what his name meant. That's what his parents decided. And he became the servant of Nebo. Those names were meant to insult them, to remind them that their God had failed them in the minds of Babylon. Those names were to be this repetitive, every time they needed to be called, reminder of what had happened and who was victorious and who was not. Like those names are significant. And they didn't resist those names. Many in our American church would never put up with what Daniel and his friends did by accepting those names in this culture. Continue to verse 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. Now, this is different. In this moment, he is choosing to resist, unlike they did with their names. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel favor and compassion from the chief official. Yet he said to Daniel, my lord, the king assigned your food and drink. I'm afraid of what would happen if he saw your faces looking thinner than those of the other young men your age. You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food. And deal with your servants based On what you see. Deciding what to resist and what not to resist was an incredibly significant challenge for Daniel and his friends, and that culture at that time, with the breaths they were breathing that God gave them. It was a brutal place to be in the midst of the gray they faced, yet that was where God had placed them. We face incredibly challenging gray areas as well that are not fun places to be and fun conversations to have and comfortable relationships to engage in. Yet it's where Jesus has placed us. That's significant. Gray, it's an important word. Most of these things are not black and white. And as I say that, there's many of you already thinking through a whole bunch of proof texts that you want to send me in an email or something about the things that are black and white. So, hear this I am not saying that there is not black and white. There's a lot of black and white in the scriptures. However, there's also a lot of gray. And if you find yourself in a pattern of thinking that it is only black and white all the time and you don't see gray relationally, the strength of Jesus and his good design for life and the compassion that he loves people with, if your pattern is only black and white, you are probably significantly blinded by pride. It's just the reality of the, the picture the scriptures paint for us. And he calls us to be strong, living into his way in our cultural moments, yet to be equally strong with compassion and understanding and love. So, how do we know what to resist? and what to not resist as Daniel and his friends had to make those decisions. That's an entire different series and an entire different sermon at the least, but a few quick points on that I do want to cover. Knowing what to resist and what not to resist requires these things. One, constant practice and discussion. If it's not black and white, it's not the same Tomorrow, as it will be today, as it was yesterday. As I mentioned, the kids that were up here a minute ago that we prayed a blessing over, they have new challenges and questions and gray areas than I did when I was a kid. And the next generation and we will have different challenges tomorrow and 10 years from now and 20 years from now. So we can't settle. You can't think you have it together. This is what I mean by it's not black and white. The palette is continuously changing. Jesus is not changing. His way of life is not changing, but our culture does. And what love looks like based on who Jesus consistently is, that shifts. We have to understand that. This is why what we talked about last week, relational integration, having healthy Christian community and healthy non-Christian community, not being fully assimilated to the ways of our culture, but being in the midst of our culture and not being totally isolated Is so important. You have to have people to continuously discuss the gray areas with. The next thing we need is a deep awareness of where our values are actually coming from. We make assumptions that we know where our values come from, but we often don't even know. We might assume it's the Bible. We might assume it's church, but that could be a specific denomination, that could be a specific teacher, that could be a specific interpretation of the scriptures, could be your family for generations, could be a political ideology, could be all kinds of different things. There's actually a ton of different studies and books that actually frame a pretty crazy concept. The concept is this, that most of us hardly ever make decisions or choices, What's actually happening when we think we're choosing something or deciding something is it's the value system that we've had poured into us from the moment we were born, all kinds of different values being prioritized. And as we prioritize from greatest to least these values, we think we choose something, but what is actually happening is we choose the values that have been poured into us, how we've married them over a significant amount of time. doesn't mean we don't make decisions and choices, but almost always what's actually happening is you're just choosing something based on the influence of values over your lifetime. If that's the case, then how important is it to have a deep awareness of where our values actually come from? Rick McKinley puts it this way about the church and how we oftentimes don't understand where our values come from. Think about how important this sentence is. The sad reality is that most followers of Jesus do not know how to discern what is sin and what is life-giving because so much of their discipling has been focused on personal conduct and not spiritual discernment. We like church services and teachings and Bible studies that make us feel good about something and give a tangible, go and do this. And it's about you and what you should do. But I wholeheartedly, unfortunately, agree with that statement. Think about the weight of that. If most Christians don't know how to identify sin and what is life-giving, that's gonna have significant implications. We have this kind of Christian moralism we've often grown up with, perhaps, or maybe you know someone that did, and we have our lists of do's and don'ts, don't drink, don't have sex outside of marriage, blah, 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 do this, go to church, some Bible studies, give some money, pray, whatever. And we think as long as you do that, you're good, you're on the right path. But so often, we're totally putting Jesus into this tiny little box Kind of like a genie in Aladdin and saying, you know what, I want three wishes now. Come on out and I'll seek your advice and then I'm done with you. Go back in your little, your little lamp because I don't want to trust you in all of life. Rick McKinley uh, continues on this referencing somebody in, in his life. One man who came to Christ in his mid-20s described it this way. After I met Jesus, most people were really worried about who I was sleeping with. But no one asked me about my money and how I spent it. He recognized that in the culture of the church, sexual sin is at the top of the list, but the sense of greed and consumption, overconsumption rarely get mentioned. Jesus wants our entire lives. This means he wants not only our sexual fidelity, but also our generosity as we use our money for his kingdom instead of to serve ourselves. That's one example. But the physical, the relational, the spiritual... Everything, that's what Jesus wants. That's where he defines and declares and heals and brings and restores what is good. Do we take him seriously in all things? Do we know where our values actually come from? Back to this list of what's necessary uh, to know what to resist and when to resist what. Significant humility. We're gonna have to learn the art of having humility. We'll talk about that in a moment. Lastly, and I already mentioned it, we constantly have to live into a healthy relational tension in between isolation and assimilation. Daniel chapter 1, we're given somewhat of a, a template of how Daniel and his friends found success in these gray areas they faced. Look at verse 14. He, the, the guard placed over them, agreed with Daniel and them about this and tested them for 10 days. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine. They were to drink and gave them vegetables. Here's what Daniel and his friends realized. Here's how they lived into the gray areas. And it's something I think we need to adopt ourselves. True humility opens doors. Pride in any form slams doors shut. True humility opens doors, pride in any form slams doors shut. Let's talk about true humility first. Humility is so often misunderstood because there's a lot of myths about humility. One is that humility and strength are opposites. They're antonyms, that you can't be humble and be strong. And I would make the argument, it takes a very deep and unique type of strength to actually be humble. Another is that humility and excellence do not go hand in hand. You can't have a bunch of trophies and be humble. That is one of the farthest things from the truth. I would actually maybe argue until you're good at something, you can't probably actually be humble. Larry Osborne puts it this way, low self-esteem A soft and pliable disposition, lack of ambition, and a denial of our strengths and accomplishments. I'm gonna stop there for a second. Those would probably often be characteristics we would list of humble people. They're not talking about themselves a lot and what they've accomplished. They're, They're really easygoing, soft and pliable. They're go with the flow kind of people. They're not ambitious and pursuing a bunch of things. They're not being honest about the things they're good at. That's kind of how we think of humility, and as a result, probably nobody wants to be humble or they shouldn't want to be this type of humble, but instead he says this, low self-esteem, a soft and pliable disposition, lack of ambition, and a denial of our strengths and accomplishments have nothing to do with biblical humility. They are not the marks of spiritual maturity. They are the marks of insecurity. There's two sides of pride that we have to understand. One is obvious, it's arrogance. One of the most deceptive keys of pride is that the only ones that are prideful are the arrogant braggers, and they are prideful. But the other side of pride that is equally as devastating, maybe more so because it actually looks better, it's, it's more acceptable, it's easy to take, is the insecure. Both are not okay with how others perceive themselves. Both have a mirror in front of them saying, look at me this way and process life through the lens of self. Look at verse 17. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief officials presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to serve in the king's courts as influencers. And every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the diviner priests and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Here's what this means. The humility, biblical humility, true humility, strong and compassionate humility that Daniel and his friends had opened the door for them to become the king's most influential advisors. In the midst of having everything taken away from them, they sat at the right hand of the king to give him advice and input on what was actually valuable, on what was actually good, because their humility opened the door for that to happen. This godly humility came with a lot of success. It also came with death threats and near-death experiences, but it came with a lot of success and opportunity. True humility opens doors. Pride in any form, meaning arrogance or insecurity, both are pride, slams doors shut. Imagine for a moment... When they're given these new names and they just deal with it because they're young, they don't know what to do. This is new for them. They have to make choices. They choose not to resist. And so one of them says, you know what? The next time something happens, we better step up. And now they're supposed to eat this food that historically they were not allowed to eat. And so their their plates are presented and one of them stands up and goes to the guard. Hey, you idiots. We can't eat this trash. We don't defile ourselves in this way. You should know better than that. How do you think that would have went for them? Probably how it goes for us in today's culture when the church responds to people in that way. And that reaction's known pretty well because it's something the church has done a lot of. But that's not what Daniel did. Daniel and his friends weren't blinded by pride. Pride blinds us. Pride's like a, a mirror that causes us just to look at and consider ourselves constantly instead of the other. It's almost as if I'm having coffee or a conversation with somebody and they can hear me through the mirror of pride, whether in insecurity or arrogance, in between us. We can have a conversation, but only, the only thing I see the whole time is myself. The only thing I hear the whole time, even as they talk and I listen, if I get that far, is my perspective, my story. How does this impact me? What fears does it cause for me? What can I achieve? What opportunities can I get from this? There's a mirror that looks at me, talks about me, I like it, I pursue it, I fix it, and I don't see a person. This is the dehumanization that happens. Instead I see a problem, I see a political proposition, Prop 2 or whatever, that from my world, with my mirror, I want fixed? Pride blinds us. We stop seeing people. Ed Stetzer frames it this way in his book, Christians in the Age of Outrage. Behind every expression of outrage in our age is real need, brokenness, and destruction that our message of reconciliation through Jesus is meant to address. The age of outrage may be defined by its anger and polarization, but beneath these self-defense mechanisms are real and valid underlying questions as people try to understand their origin, identity, purpose, and path in life. There's real brokenness in our world. You've all faced that. And so people are coping with real issues and questions because they're real people with real problems. Those come out in different ways. As the church, we've often been guilty of ignoring what's on our wall. The first word there, broken stories, becoming beautiful. There's real brokenness and people are going through real things and oftentimes we've ignored that because we live with a mirror and between us and them and we look at everything from our perspective only. Tone matters in these conversations. We're called to strength and compassion. Daniel and his friends were strong. They stood up for things. They resisted, but they did so with humility. Resistance without humility is not going to be impactful. Humility without resistance will not be impactful. Verses eight through 10, one more time. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. He made a choice. Now he gets to choose how to resist. He was going to resist. Now he gets to choose how to. Look at this. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel favor and compassion from the chief official. Yet this guy says to Daniel, my lord, the king assigned your food and drink. I'm afraid of what would happen. You could kind of insert in parentheses to me, he If he saw your faces looking thinner than those of the other young men your age, you would endanger my life with the king. Guess what? Daniel cared about this guy's life. Though his life was impacted, he also saw the other perspective. Look at verse 13. Daniel says, test us. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. Here's what didn't happen. Daniel and his friends did not reach out and grasp for power and control. He said, you make the decision based on what you see. Open-handedly, they placed control in God's hands and they trusted. And he was sympathetic and he lived into the gray and this moment of humble resistance. Can we put that slide with the the four quadrants back up. Where do you think you often find yourself? On the side of disengaging? Is it with a prideful resistance or a humble resistance? Or is it on the side of engagement with a prideful resistance or a humble resistance? Where are you in this? It's gotta start with awareness. I'm gonna invite the, the worship team Back up. As they come up, though, I want us to pause, and I'm going to give us just a, a few minutes to pray. And close your eyes if that's helpful. But I, what, I want you to, what I want to encourage you to do is this. Let the image of faces or people or the sound of, of conversations come to mind when you've dealt with these gray areas, and ask yourself if there's anyone you need to seek their forgiveness. Do we as the church, do you personally need to repent of how you've handled the gray areas? One of the most impactful things we can do to regain a voice and authority and influence to show that the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually good news to all people is to become really good at repenting. And there's no doubt that the church needs to repent of how we've dealt with the gray areas often. I am not saying we should not stand strong for the way of Jesus because it's actually good. One of the most loving things we can do is stand strong because his way is good and the world needs his way of life. But we have to do it compassionately. Go ahead and spend a few minutes in prayer asking the Spirit to give you wisdom and insight to what this has looked like in your own life. Let's spend a few minutes in prayer now. Thank mm-hmm. you. Jesus, gives us, give us eyes to see what you want us to see and ears to hear what you want us to hear and hearts to feel what you want us to feel. God, make us like you. Bless us with a unique, humble strength and a unique, godly compassion. Marry those things together in our lives and guide us as we seek to present who you are to the community around us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. And we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, If you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember... Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.